Right. Uh, thank you for coming to order. I turn it over to John Taylor. Okay, welcome everybody for this next session. I uh, hope it's as interesting as the first, I'm sure it will be. We have, uh, this is entitled Corporate Social Responsibility, ESG in Investing and Climate Disclosure. I'm the chair of the session, I'll shut up and listen. Um, but uh, we're gonna have Sanjay Bhagat from the University of Colorado begin, and have some slides I understand. And then my good friend and colleague from the Hoover Institution, John Cochran, will continue. This is such an important topic. We're going to get into the issues about uh, pressuring corporations, so to speak. How are, how are they responding to the ESG signals? How credible are those signals? And a little bit on uh, what other organizations of government might do, including the SEC. So there's a lot of things to discuss. Uh, and uh, thank you for coming. Uh, let's proceed with Sanjay, and then we'll go on to John. Sanjay. Thank you, John. So, uh, so talking about corporate social responsibility, let's think about what should be the responsibility of a corporation. I think a very famous and probably one of the most uh, distinguished uh, economists here at Hoover, Milton Friedman, uh, early on, gave us some good wisdom on that, that uh, corporations should be maximizing long-term shareholder value while uh, adhering to the law of the land. And that uh, sort of was the received wisdom until, say, the last decade or so. And now there's been a lot of focus on stakeholders, uh, employees, customers, suppliers, environment, communities. And uh, to just give you a feel for uh, the uh, extent by, the, there are various uh, entities that are promoting the stakeholder uh, principles or what we refer to as stakeholderism. Uh, you've got the business roundtable. Of course, uh, since this is late January, you know we have to talk about Davos. You know they they always talk about uh, socially responsible corporations. Uh, BlackRock they've been in news for the last many years, uh, talking about their focus on uh, ESG investing. So ESG uh, stands for environment, social, maybe social justice and governance. And of course, the lawyers are not, academic lawyers are not far behind. So here's the way of uh, thinking about it graphically. Uh, these two ideas about uh, shareholder primacy, which is what Milton Friedman was talking about, and the new stakeholderism principle, they're not, uh, you know, totally unrelated. And indeed, uh, you know, Friedman's idea, uh, you know, he, he said, of course, corporations should be looking at employees and customers and, and environment, but they should be looking at it through the lens or the prism of uh, shareholder value. So that was his unifying principle. And the new stakeholderism does not have that unifying principle there. Uh, managers should be looking out for the uh, employees, environment, customers, uh, communities, uh, independent of each other, and the shareholders too. So there is no uh, and way to integrate as to you know which one should 
matter more, which one should matter less, if uh, this is not a hypothetical, Ford recently had to close down, or at least it had the prospect of closing down one of their uh, gasoline diesel uh, truck factory and convert that into an electric uh, factory, electric vehicle factory, uh, which would require many fewer workers, so you would have unemployment on the one hand or layoffs on the one hand offset by making uh, electric uh, engine cars, which presumably are better for the environment. So which way should they go? If you think about stakeholderism, there is no way to uh, uh, answer that. At least Friedman's idea gives you a way to think about you know, the impact on shareholder value of those two alternatives. So here's uh, sort of, you know, a way to think about where markets and mandate, which is the theme of this uh, conference today, might be relevant. So everything to the right of this uh, vertical axis, that's got positive stakeholder value. So you're thinking about various corporate activities that could fall in that. And everything above the horizontal line has got positive shareholder value. So you have those uh, green quadrant, uh, uh, the um, upper green quadrant is where most of the projects that do not entail any controversy between uh, stakeholder values and shareholder values. And uh, if you have competitive labor markets, competitive product markets, we will be in those green quadrants, meaning there's not going to be any controversy whether managers adopt the uh, long-term shareholder viewpoint or the stakeholder viewpoint. To give you a very simple and obvious example, uh, so if you're thinking about uh, uh, Managers, you know, are thinking about uh, employee benefits. So, you know, they're thinking about, okay, you know, happy employees make happy customers, happy customers create revenues, revenues ultimately lead to shareholder value. So why would managers not uh, look after their employees and, you know, treat them well? Because in a competitive labor market, if they don't treat them well, uh, those workers won't be around, and as word goes out that this company is not treating the workers well, it'd be hard to hire good workers to begin with, or good employees to begin with. So this controversy around stakeholder shareholders, a lot of it can be addressed by competitive labor markets, competitive product markets, and yet uh, there's almost uh, no discussion of uh, the role of competitive markets in resolving this sort of ongoing debate. Uh, now, of course, you know, one can also end up in those uh, yellow or orange quadrants where there could be different uh, outcome depending on which tool you adopt. And uh, that you could end up there if the markets were not competitive. And then also if uh, you, you have sometimes uh, inconsistent time frame, like managers may have a shorter time frame than the environmental impact of what they do in the company. Some of that can be addressed through incentive, uh, appropriate incentive compensation of managers. But that's an issue that, that uh, I think uh, needs attention. Okay, so uh, let's look at some uh, uh, finance here or investments, which is sort of the, one of the things that uh, the first session gets into. 
this data is from Morningstar, I think their most recent data for the last uh, three years. The flow of funds into sustainable funds. Sustainable funds are these uh, mutual funds, uh, hedge funds that uh, uh, you know, invest in uh, ESG type investments. And uh, so there are three things to notice about this. One is that uh, this light blue in each of the column is the amount of fund flowing into European funds. The dark blue is in the US, and the yellow is the rest of the world. So the first thing to notice is this is mostly, uh, sustainable funds is mostly a European thing. Number one. Number two, this sustain, these sustainable funds investment peaked out in early 2021. And third, during the last two years, 2021 and 2022, there's been a dramatic decline in investor interest. And this has not been highlighted, I think, much by the uh, media or, or other people that talk about it. So uh, the, the issue, I think there is this very nice paper in the Academic Journal of Finance that talks about uh, the paper has the title, Do Investors Value Sustainability? And so these authors look at uh, Morningstar ratings. So in, in 2016, March of 2016, Morningstar, did, uh, Morningstar tried to rate these uh, uh, funds that they had into five globe, meaning they really are paying attention to sustainability sort of issues, and one globe, meaning they, they are not. And uh, what the authors documented that in terms of uh, returns and risk, the five globe funds that were these you know, uh, environmentally responsible funds had uh, lower returns and higher risk than these, uh, these uh, uh, one globe funds. Now that's just one study, and I'm sure uh, almost all of you have heard or seen other studies. Literally, there are thousands of studies that have been done in just the last decade or so, there is a paper that reviews not just these studies, but reviews other meta studies that have reviewed, you know, themselves thousands of uh, underlying studies, and basically uh, they. To make a long story short, if you're looking at the impact of sustainability or ESG on investor returns, that's the only result that this meta study found to be significantly negative. And interestingly enough, they don't find the climate change theme studies to have any effect on invest, uh, investor returns. Um, Moving on to this principle of re responsible investment. Now, you know, this sort of, you know, sounds good. Like, who could be against that? United Nations uh, proposed these in 2006. And if you are a mutual fund or a hedge fund and you are sign on to the United Nations principle of responsible investment, you are, uh, you are agreeing to abide by these uh, uh, six principles that you will invest in companies that are responsible, you will encourage these companies to, I mean, these operating companies to invest, respons invest responsibly and so forth. This all sounds, uh, sounds excellent. Again, uh, there are more assets uh, under management, uh, you know, by mutual funds, hedge funds in the U.S. compared to Europe, and uh, these uh, principles of sustainable. Uh, 
principle of responsible investment that really took off once UN introduced that in 2006. But again, it seems to be mostly a European phenomena. Uh, you know, many uh, funds in the in the U.S. also adopted that, but you know, again, it seems to be a European thing. So there is a nice paper written by both. Uh, authors based in Europe and the US. And uh, they ask several interesting questions. One is, do US institutional investors invest in companies with better sustainability records? And uh, after they signed this principle of responsible investment, and uh, their answer is no. So maybe you might say that, well, of course, you invest in companies that are not doing good, and then you make them do good. So the question is, do US institutional investors uh, once they've invested in these companies, do their sustainability records or the ESG scores improve after that? The answer again is no. So you might ask as to what exactly is going on here, and this we find is a consistent theme, as we'll show you soon. Uh, what's going on is basically funds that are not doing too well are more likely to be signing on to the UN principles of responsible investment. And uh, there, is, uh, there are other studies that sort of look again at similar kinds of issues. So the ESG rating that some of you may have read, you know, it seems to have even, uh, it used to be an academic thing, but now in the media also it's caught on, that these ratings are very controversial, not consistent, and so forth. So these authors looked at actual labor law violations, environmental law violations of companies, uh, of uh, funds, in the US funds. So you have a US mutual fund that would start an ESG fund, and then the same manager would also have non-ESG funds. And so they uh, don't find any uh, uh, improvement in labor and environmental records after, the, after these companies uh, invest in these, I mean, uh, invest in these funds. And again, we find that the investment returns of the US ESG funds is less than of non-ESG funds. Same theme as we saw earlier, that investment returns are worse. There's no measurable improvement in uh, labor or environmental records of these funds that, that claim to be uh, ESG uh, sustainable focused funds. And uh, so this, uh, you know, this again is, seems to be an underlying theme. I recently finished working with the, with the co-author on this green bonds. So green bonds are bonds that companies, municipalities, governments can issue. We only looked at uh, corporations. And, and th this, these green bonds have really uh, become very, very popular with corporations. Um, in the last uh, decade. And uh, so what, what these green bonds are, so company issues bonds and say something like, you know, the firms that we raise from this, we will use this in environmentally friendly ways. And well, that sounds all very good. And uh, we didn't see that the stock market had any interest in hearing about that. So these companies would announce it. The market would ignore those announcements pretty much. But what we found interesting was that companies that were announcing green bonds were typically performing below par financially. So their operating 
performance was subpar, and they were more likely to be announcing green bonds. Similar to another study, so every quarter you will have the CEO and the CFO of a company having a teleconference with analysts that follow their company. And, and anybody can actually you know, listen to it, and, and those uh, uh, recordings are there available taped and transcript. So these authors looked at the transcript of literally you know, tens of thousands of these teleconferences. And what they found is when a company uh, quarterly earnings were below market expectations, then in those teleconferences, there was a lot of talk about ESG. You know, we, we are so concerned about our customers, our employees, and the environment, and so forth. On the other hand, when the company's quarterly earnings were above expectations, total radio silence on ESG. OK, so one of the uh, questions we were asked to address was, should the SEC enforce mandates to disclose compliance with climate goals? So let's, uh, I, I thought it would be interesting to see what the original mandate of the SEC was given to it by Congress back in the 1933 Exchange Act, the 1934 Exchange Act. And the uh, mandate from Congress was specifically to look out for the interests uh, of the individual investors, the retail investors, the small investors. And if you go look at the SEC's climate proposal, in the first 10 pages, uh, there is absolutely no mention of any individual investor. In fact, in the entire 500 plus pages of their climate proposal, the word individual investor may have been mentioned once. And they talk a lot about the large institutional investors. Mostly many of these investors are based in Europe. Some are based in the US. So their, their climate proposal appears to be motivated by the concerns of the large institutional investors. And uh, so we said it might be interesting to re review what individual investors, uh, what their views are with regard to their investments and their attention to environmental concerns versus just uh, investment returns. And here you have uh, two studies in or two surveys, uh, one by the NORC based at University of Chicago. Uh, they looked at 1,000 plus retail investors. And these investors don't think that uh, environmental aspects were very important, but investment returns were very important. Similar result from Gallup. And then since we are here at, at Hoover, just last summer, uh, the business school here, Hoover, and uh, the Rock Institute, or the Rock Center for Governance, they uh, did this very interesting survey of uh, individual investors. And uh, one of their findings was that if you're looking at uh, older uh, retired, I mean, older investors, meaning uh, more than 58 years old, I think they called them baby boomers or, you know, uh, of that time frame, they had absolutely uh, no interest in uh, trading off any of the investment returns uh, for any ESG benefits. 
Also, uh, younger investors, meaning those between the ages of 18 and 41, who had less than $25,000 to invest, they also had no interest in trading off any of their investment returns for ESG benefits. But younger investors who had more than $250,000 to invest, had they, they would trade off significant amounts of their investment return for ESG. Now, obviously, you know, you have many more individuals who uh, invest less than 25,000 as opposed to more than quarter million. So in terms of just numbers, uh, these numbers of individuals who are interested in uh, um, not trading off the investment returns for ESG is consistent with the other two earlier surveys. So the question then is, uh, you know, whose interest is the SEC trying to address? The one that they got the mandate from the Congress, or, or do they have a different idea? And uh, here's uh, another <laughs> data point that, that's uh, interesting. Uh, very carefully done study recent, uh, recently by uh, Columbia Business School and uh, London School of Economics, ex London Business School faculty. Uh, they find no relationship between carbon emissions and uh, either stock returns or operating performance. So um, is the SEC's mandate going to in any ways help these companies financially? Uh, that's my question, but now I'm happy to give it back to <laughs> give it back to John Taylor here. Thank you very much, Sanjay. It's a great beginning. We're going to now you. hear directly from John. Save your questions. We'll have lots of good questions, I'm sure. So go ahead, John. Uh, thanks. Uh, I'd like to make a <clears throat> Three sets of comments. Uh, first on ESG, then the more the broader issue of climate finance uh, and climate financial regulation, and the broader still issue of uh, climate economics and the markets versus mandates that we're here to talk about. Um, I think we're most interested in environment and especially climate. And uh, ESG, let's not forget, means S and G too not just the E. I looked up some of the inputs to ESG ratings. Uh, promote socially conscious themes, diversity, inclusion, community focus, social justice, the racial and gender composition of boards of directors, pay equity, unions, animal welfare, animal rights, donating to local community activist groups, and so on and so forth. Uh, this ESG is not just climate and saving the planet. It is part of the stakeholder capitalism movements and really rates companies on whether they adhere to a fairly far-ranging uh, progressive political agenda. Um, can we bend corporations to uh, uh, political ends? This is part of a broader tragedy, the politicization of climate. Uh, even the IPCC wraps climate in a far-reaching political agenda, the equitable transition, climate justice. Uh, when I, I'm having trouble falling asleep at night, I sometimes read the IPCC reports page after page of subject-free sentences uh, for a 100-year global central planning effort. Uh, let me just quote you one sentence. Uh, what we need is capacity building, finance, governance, technology transfer, investments, development, and social equity considerations with meaningful participation of indigenous peoples and vulnerable populations. High confidence. This is a tragedy. Climate was once a bipartisan technocratic problem in the 1990s, as, as ozone was. Now it's part of a political crusade with a tinge of moral purification. 
The movement is the heir of uh, the Paul Ehrlich population bomb back in the news, the Club of Rome resource catastrophe, the 1980s anti-nuclear power movement. Uh, that's not a great record. And, and now, uh, you know, you've, you've noticed it in the rhetoric. What was once global warming became climate change, climate emergency, climate catastrophe. And now, thanks to Al Gore, who I think was there for every single one of these cries of wolf, tells us that the oceans are boiling. I don't think that word means what you think it means. And the anti-capitalists, the degrowthers, and the eco-authoritarians are not far behind. The tragedy of all this is that we'll waste an immense amount of money, it'll impoverish people, and it will not cure the climate. If it's tied to this larger agenda uh, that you must agree with if you want to help the climate, uh, then you cannot sustain a 100-year effort in democracies on this basis. And those of you who disagree with the larger agenda are then forced to say, well, something's wrong with the climate stuff, too. Uh, a little bit of economics on uh, ESG. It is, of course, ludicrous to claim that ESG raises returns to investors. Maximization of an objective subject to a constraint leads a less than an equal out, uh, outcome than maximization without the constraint. That's a theorem. The point is to deny capital, to lower asset prices, to raise expected returns, to raise the cost of capital for evil companies, to give capital, to raise prices, and to lower the expected returns for good companies. If it doesn't lower investors' returns, it's not doing any good. Morality shouldn't be painless anyway. Moreover, as Sanjay said, but I'll say it louder, uh, <laughs> which is my tendency. Stakeholder capitalism only works if the companies are protected from competition. Competitive companies can't afford this stuff. This is about grabbing the rents. And we ought to think about it, actually. Uh, I, I will say some uh, um, things you don't expect from me. Taxing and spending and regulation might not be so bad because they are better than crony capitalism. They are better than we will protect you from competition if you will do what we want politically and we'll hide it all, uh, I hide it all under the, under, the, under the rug. Witness our medical institutions if you want to see how that uh, goes. So markets and mandates is supposed to be what we're talking about, but there's a third and even worse one, the crony capitalist approach, the, the perversion of market to be a mandate. Now, I'm a free marketer. If people want to invest their money in social causes and earn lower rates of return, fine. They ought to be able to do that. What do we object to? The objective, of course, is when uh, the intermediary system of finance isn't working and is bent to uh, have things happen that the under underlying investors don't want. Vanguard votes my shares to ESG causes, and I don't like that. Shareholders are starting to revolt, though, so now what the plan is obviously get the SEC to force it. I'll say something else you might not expect. Regulation might not be so bad. Uh, regulation of ESG claims there's a lot of greenwashing going on. And if you have the SEC looking at you every time you claim to be wonderful and holy under criminal penalties, uh, maybe there would at least be a lot more honesty in that stuff. Now let me move on to climate finance more generally. Um, clearly what's happening, as Sanjay mentioned, is the SEC wants to shove it down our throats with hundreds of pages of climate disclosure. I'll recommend Hester Peirce's savage deconstruction of this effort, and then I, I don't have to go on too long on it. The problems, of course, what authority does the SEC have to push carbon policies? Um, the SEC is supposed to be there, uh, it's supposed to only require things that are material, things that have to do with the, the financials of it. 
The SEC is, to, is there to avoid asymmetric information problems. The company knows something, doesn't tell you about it, and you, the investor, uh, are, are hurt by it. But of course, they're telling companies to disclose things that they don't know. What are your carbon emissions? I don't know. I don't know, and we have no bloody answer, ought to be a perfectly valid answer to asymmetric information. But no, the SEC is forcing companies to hire a whole bunch of consultants to come up with numbers that nobody really knows. Furthermore, scope three is, is uh, really brings us to bear. You, you count it all. I'm going to quote here from Mark Rostin, who's here. I think beautifully. Scope one captures carbon emissions. Scopes two and three count somebody else's scope one emissions again. We need, of course, a good system that counts everything and counts it only once. And of course, net. Net zero. Net is the cryptocurrency of the 2030s. There's a lot of people selling the same forest three times, and then it burns. <laughs> Now, this is, even the SEC is only a small part of the effort. Uh, Jay Powell says no, but the rest of the Fed is all in on climate stress test, climate risk to the financial system, disclosure of management practices about climate, and the Fed's behind the curve. The Bank of England, the ECB, the OECD, the BIS, and the rest of the alphabet soup is all in. Uh, this is a part of a larger effort, the, quote, whole of government approach uh, to a specific set of carbon policies. Those are stopping U.S. fossil fuel development, drilling, transmission, refining, which, of course, means, means moving it all to foreign countries, huge subsidies for current generation technology, electric cars, trains, transit, windmills, solar panels, speeding up a naturally occurring transition at great cost, so long as it's built in the U.S. with U.S. union labor, U.S. resources from mines that we won't, get, we won't let open. Forcing electric transitions before alternatives are available. Oh, my dear city of Palo Alto wants us all to get rid of our stoves and natural gas to make them electric so that we'll burn the natural gas somewhere else to make the electricity that runs our stoves. <laughs> and of course, based on current technology, it was only, let me remind you, it was not long ago that switchgrass and corn ethanol were the wonderful things that was going to cure us. Uh, <laughs> what actually brought down U.S. emissions was fracking pretty much over the dead body of the same regulatory uh, establishment. There's essentially no cost-benefit analysis in any of this. Economists do bring something to the table, and that is, you know, vague quantification is a good idea. See, for example, the $100 billion California high-speed train from Fresno to Bakerfield, which is supposed to save the climate. Uh, when we do electric cars, uh, at least there's no full cycle. Uh, how much CO2 is used in making the electric car? And the terrible fact that if you make an electric car, that lowers the price of gas, and someone else burns the gas somewhere else. Uh, Cost-benefit analysis has to be of the whole market. The whole in, uh, Inflation Reduction Act, I think uh, Bjorn Lomberg calculated, I can't get the number of zeros before the one on how much this reduces global temperatures in the year 2100, but there's a lot of them. <laughs> and of course, we ignore China, India, Africa, and even most of the US agriculture and construction. But democratic legislatures will not move on this agenda. So what do we do? Grab the financial system. Mobilize capital. Watch your wallets when somebody says that. Mobilize capital to support the transition. A recent Fed study, yes, the Fed, came out with what's needed. About four times annual GDP by the year 2050 uh, needs to be mobilized to get the green transition going. Well, at least they're admitting the immense costs. The renewals are not cheaper, cheaper and the returns will not attract private capital. So let's get the whole of government in to do this. Here I want to quote from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, because it's very revealing. 
The Financial Stability Oversight Council is recognizing that climate change is an emerging and increasing threat to US financial stability. The report puts climate change squarely at the forefront of the agenda of its member agencies and is the critical first step forward in addressing the threat of climate change. Now, wait a minute. The Fed, the SEC, the FDIC uh, can't say don't invest here and invest over there. We don't have a whole of government. We have limited government of, of laws and narrow purpose agencies. So what do we do if we want to get the Fed to send four times GDP off to current green, uh, green, green uh, regulations? Well, we invent climate risk to the financial system. We're not doing climate policy. We're just taking care of risks to the financial system. Now, no, in, in Janet Yellen's second sentence, she, gave, she, she admitted the game's up. No, no, it's not really about risks. It's about driving, uh, dri illegally driving, financial, uh, driving climate policy. Well, let's take that a little. Climate risk to the financial system is a complete fabrication. Just read the English language. Climate is the probability distribution of the weather. The risk that the climate will change unexpectedly and so drastically, so abruptly, in the next five years that we can vaguely pretend to foresee financial affairs, that the economy tanks so badly, the economy as a whole, to blow through equity, long-term debt, and spark a systemic crisis. There's just nothing in, in the IPCC reports, there's nothing in any science that that event can possibly happen. It's simply invented. Our modern floods and hurricanes have never caused financial system problems. Our modern industrial economy is remarkably resistant to weather, and the 2100 service economy even more so. The units of climate change, I, I love Steve Kuhlman reminds us of this, the units are millimeters per year of sea level rise. Millimeters per year. The units are a degree per century. That doesn't come and get you in the next five years in a way that destroys the financial system. Well, they say, what about transition risk? The godfather comes in. Nice business here. Too bad if we should pass some regulations that would destroy it. Well, do our, are our legislators really so dumb as to pass climate rules that would destroy the whole US financial system? That's unlikely as well, and also history. Let's look at past transitions. 1929, we had a financial problem. What failed, the horse and buggy industry or the new industries, the new ones? 1999, we had a stock market crash. What failed, the typewriter industry or the nascent tech industries? Of course, it was the tech industries. Slowly dying industries never cause financial problems. Uh, even in the most recent one, the transition risk, everybody's saying, oh, oh, the, 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 oil, the oil and gas companies will be bankrupt. We have to do something about this. We just saw what happened. What happens when you stop fossil fuel development? Do prices go up? Do prices go down? Do profits of oil companies go up or go down? They got the sign wrong on the most basic, I'm going to do my Terry Anderson, the most basic Econ 101 of transition risk. And again, the whole project uh, relies on uncompetitive markets protected from competition that we can mobilize into four years of GDP. 
The trouble, again, is it's not just waste. It's it won't help the climate. And it won't help the other job. Regulators obsessed with climate are missing basics. The SEC missed F FTX brewing right under its nose with plenty of regulatory tool. The Fed, obsessed with climate, missed 8% inflation brewing right under its nose. The Bank of England, also obsessed with climate, missed plain vanilla uh, pension funds borrowing too much that blew up. Well, moreover, climate catastrophe obsession means that all the important planning we need to do for pandemics, war, civil society, financial crises, plus genuine uh, uh, environmental crises, species extinction, polluted water, infectious diseases, Africa, they need clean water and propane stoves now. They don't need a uh, little bit lower sea levels in 2100. So let me move on quickly, I know, John, to climate economics in general. I want to make a, a plug for economists, because I'm an economist. We know a lot about the weather. Uh, we don't know anywhere near enough about the economics. The basic facts aren't, aren't in, in uh, question. Climate's warming. The sea level's rising. The big question is, what's the economic cost of all of this? The best guesses are 5% of GDP in the year 2100. Now, honestly, the real answer ought to be, we have no bloody idea. How do we get to 5% of GDP in the year 2100? Well, they look at statistical correlations between weather and, uh, and productivity today. But wait a minute, everyone's moving from upstate New York to Florida. So what's wrong with that? Well, as you look across the world, the differences in productivity are amazing. The differences in weather are small. So you're trying to tease out a tiny needle in a big haystack. Get out your difference in differences, your fixed effects, your controls, and your interactions to try to find the 1% uh, effect. Imagine what would happen if we did this in 1922. Statistically examine, try to guess the effect of, uh, of climate on uh, productivity in, in, on, in on 100 years out. You would have missed air conditioning. You would have said the South is toast, move everything north. You would have missed the fact that, in fact, we have air conditioning. The South is now higher productivity than north. The, the, Difference between New York and Florida is way more than the difference that climate change is going to bring us in the next 100 years. You would have said, get those Model A's online faster, quickly, <laughs> forgetting everything that comes in between. Second, 5% of GDP in 100 years is couch change. The UK is 40% below the US in GDP per capita, eight times worse than climate change. India's GDP per capita is 2,000 bucks. Ours is 60,000 bucks. 5% of GDP is two years of growth, one recession. Now, uh, that's, that's actually a little bit, but it's not worth four years of GDP now. If the question is, make India 5% richer in 2100, get them a little bit from the 2,000 to the 60,000, the answer is not buy a Tesla to drive down to your private jet. Climate is not the answer. Growth is the answer. So we shouldn't be arguing about the climate. We should be investigating the economic effects. What if, in fact, warmer weather makes economies more productive? That's well within one standard deviation of, of what we know. We need to know more about the economic effects. Presume, possibly, and this is a challenge to people who <coughs> want the answers, we should be arguing about the environmental effects. I don't think the economic effect justifies anywhere near what we're doing. So perhaps, but I'd be happy to listen to, like smoke, uh, like, like, uh, like uh, bad water, like diseases. This is a purely environmental problem. We should spend money to solve an environmental problem. That's nowhere in any of the, uh, the IPCC reports. It's all in the economic effects, which are trivial. And the uncomfortable truth. Subsidizing green stuff won't budge the climate. 
it makes energy overall cheaper. Uh, and therefore we use more of it at a huge cost to the rest of the economy. Remember, every electric car frees up gas for somebody else. Regulating away fossil fuels makes energy more expensive to everything and destroys our economy much more than it helps the 2100 economy, especially in poor countries. If the question is to help the climate without destroying GDP, adaptation and innovation to make clean energy cheaper without subsidies are the only option. Let me tell you about a conversion experience. Every now and then, things that I, I believe for my whole life change suddenly. I'm an economist. You give me carbon, I say, externality, carbon tax, carbon property rights, done. Let's be, and no regulations, and so they're all very inefficient. Markets, not mandates. I've changed my mind. And uh, 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 Esteban Rossi Hansberg work at the University of Chicago is very important in this. He showed simulations of what happens when you put in a carbon tax. And if you think about it for two minutes, you get the answer. Putting in a carbon tax only delays uh, the amount that you, that you burn the oil. Because we, burn, we, we use oil, and as we slowly use it, it gets more expensive to take out of the ground. If you make it more expensive to take out of the ground, you just delay that process for about four or five years. But if you think Mother Gaia is going to burn, if the oceans are going to boil, delaying it for four or five years makes no difference whatsoever. The oil has to stay in the ground to make any difference to the climate, and a carbon tax does not do that. Um, the, the only answer uh, is, and, and if you do that, Africa and India stay poor. The only answer is that no carbon, which isn't necessarily renewable, no, no carbon uh, um, energy must become radically cheaper. And here I'll just channel Bjorn Lomborg. That is the only way out. A carbon tax just delays the inevitable and doesn't make any difference. And of course, the main answer to the economic effects of climate change will be adaptation. Millimeters per year. We talk about, oh, the, the sea is going to rise millimeters per year. You got plenty of time to build the dikes. I, my last climate talk I gave in Amsterdam, and the catastrophism was hilarious, given that we were two meters under sea level already. Well, in 1600, they figured out how to do that. They built dikes by hand. Uh, the, the actual costs of adaptation are slow, and markets versus mandates. You don't need a grand central plan to figure out how you adapt to sea level that's rising two millimeters a year. Uh, you know, Palo Alto worries about how we're going to do sea level rise. You know, you can raise, raise the walls as you need it. Sooner or later, put in a, a levee across the San Mateo Bridge. Uh, it, you don't need a grand plan to do that. It happens uh, naturally. Markets diffuse uh, things where they're most needed and cost effective, still allowing you to use fossil fuels. The California's idea, let's just ban electric cars. Gas cars are useful in high value uh, places. So by, by, by doing it via markets, you get the high value things first, you don't, and you don't push technologies before they're useful. For example, zoning is also climate change. If only people could move closer to where they work, we wouldn't need to have them buy electric cars. I'll close with wisdom from my daughter Sally back when she was eight years old. We were sitting around the uh, table talking about fuel mileage standards and how they were going to save the climate. Sally turned to me and said, uh, Dad, if they make people buy small cars that have great mileage and are cheaper to drive, won't they just all uh, stop carpooling and move farther away from where they work? Sally at eight years old had this pretty clearly. <laughs> Okay, thank you very much. I'm sure there's many questions that are uh, you're preparing, so don't forget. But I want to I want to just start. Sanjay began with Milton Friedman, 
and John, to some extent, expressed some Milton Friedman views. When I taught Economics One, I still do, by the way, Milton Friedman would come. He was a professor here at the Hoover Institution. It was wonderful. He would lay out the plan. The students would be bolted away. But occasionally, he would mention things like externalities. I haven't heard, maybe a little bit, John, maybe a little, but I haven't heard too much about the externalities that is caused by this. Why can't you bring it, if you want to teach freshmen, you want to teach the audience, you need to bring it back to basics. Could you say anything about how your points relate to just basic externalities? Okay, carbon is a classic externality. Uh, if it actually has economic costs, yeah. or if it has yet to be documented uh, environmental costs, worse than the other costs. So that's that's what leads Nat. You know, you, you you have to do something about it. So whether you create a property right mandate, or I think the right answer is the other externality, which is uh, the the public good. Knowledge is a public good. So the investment in uh, in huge investment in basic R and D to get us energy abundance in non-carbon energy, uh, or uh, carbon capture and storage. There's, there's all sorts of things you're not allowed to say out loud. Nuclear power, carbon capture and storage, <laughs> geoengineering, geothermal, uh, all those things that don't fall into the, the, the 1970s anti-whatever-it-is movement. Uh, but, but basic R&D is the other externality, is, is the externality of knowledge. Sanjay. Um, maybe not uh, directly to your uh, externality issue, but uh, related to that. Um, so, I mean, here is a data point that gets to it, but also gets to our Director Rice's point on you know, the three E's, like the environment, uh, or sorry, economic growth, environment, and energy. So, if you uh, look at the carbon emissions in the last two decades by various countries, and uh, let's sort of stipulate, as lawyers might say, let's stipulate that carbon emission uh, leads to negative climate or negative climate impact, though I think Stephen Coonan might, you know, have, might give you other ideas. But let's just stipulate that, that carbon emission is bad for the environment or, or the climate. And uh, climate is global by definition. So you look at the carbon emissions uh, over the last two decades, the carbon emission in the US actually has been decreasing over the last two decades. Now, can the US companies do better? Should they do better? Of course, they can do better, and they should do better. Now, how about other countries? Notably, China's carbon emission has tripled in the last two decades, and now their emission is more than twice compared to US. India's emission is also going up, and there's a reason why the emission in these countries is going up. I mean, that has to do with uh, economic growth. But, you know, whenever I talk, I mean, uh, you know, there is this conversation about concern for carbon emission and impact on global climate. Nobody is ever willing to raise the issue about what about China? China, India, and Africa. Yes. China builds a new coal-powered nuclear power plant every every week. Uh, you know, buying a new Tesla to drive yourself down to the airport is just dropping the bucket. Our, ours are going down. India needs to grow, and Africa, where uh, you know you want big trends. The demographic trend is is uh, Africa's population is exploding. Do you really want to tell them you have to stay poor, desperately poor, for another century? Comments, questions, thoughts. There you go, right here, sorry. The mic is coming to you, yeah. 
Uh, well, thank you both for <clears throat> a, a lively panel discussion. I, I have a question that uh, kind of connects with the earlier morning's theme about you know markets versus mandates, and thinking about kind of a market-based approach uh, to the disclosure problem rather than the command and control right of the SEC uh, mandate. So. I wanted to ask about shareholder resolutions. You know, you mentioned them very briefly, but uh, this as a possible market-based approach, you know, there's been a rise in shareholder resolutions that are requesting information, disclosure, climate, uh, emissions data, long-term strategy, et cetera. Uh, and, and Sanjay, as you kind of alluded to this, this larger role of institutional investors, most of these are, are being, you know, drafted, proposed by institutional investors, but there has been you know, rising support by individual investors for, for many of these resolutions. Um, so all that to say, do you see uh, the resolutions-based approach as a viable option, as kind of a market-based option for increasing disclosure to kind of close the information asymmetries, the kinds of things that firms may already know, but their investors don't know? Thanks. So, uh Shareholder uh, resolution, it actually you know, goes all the way back to my, uh, my younger days when I was doing my dissertation and sort of looking at shareholder resolutions on a variety of not environmental thing, more corporate type. So the vast majority of shareholder resolutions used to fail. In fact, they were just like uh, you know, uh, asterisk. And now some of them get more support than they used to. I think as somebody that believes in the market, I think if, share, if some shareholders want to vote on a certain proposal and if enough shareholders in a company want to do that, that's fine. Uh, I don't have any problem with that. Uh, the problem is that you know most of these shareholder proposals don't really go very far. I mean, they, they don't get, get approved. Uh, and uh, the institutional investors want to use their voting cloud, and they're holding shares on behalf of you know, retail investors who they never consult. I know there are all kinds of reasons why that doesn't happen. Uh, so the people that get to vote in, in those cases where these things do pass are not really voting. They haven't really asked for what is it, you know, they ask for the ultimate voters. What is it that you want? You have a manager at some of these big three funds deciding to vote some way, or they are being, uh, uh, quote unquote, encouraged by the uh, proxy voting companies that, you know, we would like you to vote this way. So the people that own the shares are not getting to really express. And if they want to express their viewpoint and have a company do something, I'm totally fine with that. Uh, but again, you sort of have to go back to this larger uh, data point that I mentioned. You know, the U.S. carbon emission is already declining over the last two decades. Can we decline some more? Sure, we can. We should. But it's not going to address the global climate change issue. So that's the, that's the larger context. And I sort of keep looking at this, and I mean, looking at the shareholder resolution um, for some time, and you know, to even to the extent that they're using that to uh, fight climate change, you know, you sort of think about this, uh, you know, French uh, um, marshal looking at the charge of the light brigade in Crimean war in 1800, 1850, and his uh, response was, it's magnificent, but this is not war. 
Can I, let me follow quickly up on it because we want to get to the questions. Um, disclosure is usually not about things the company knows and is keeping secret. Uh, it's let's produce information we don't know. Uh, companies are scared to death of letting in, you know, admitting that they know something and they're keeping it secret. In an ideal market, of course, uh, you know, Shareholders govern the company and, and what they want to do. If they if they want to uh, shut the company down because we don't want oil companies anymore, it's up to the shareholders. But we do have a problem in the structure of our capital markets because they've evolved. Uh, you, you, you know, shareholding started with these would be the shareholders, and and you get together in a room once a year, and what do you want to do with the company? Yes, no, maybe you vote, and and that's you know the governance of the shareholders. But now um, most uh, most stocks are held. Um, three steps removed. I hold my stock in Vanguard's total stock market portfolio. And so, of course, Vanguard votes on my behalf and, and consults ISS for where it's due. So a politically motivated person can, can grab the shareholding services or the managers and force a decision that the vast quantity of shareholders don't want. Now, for a long time, we our, our markets evolved to solve that problem. We had rules that the delegated managers had to only do uh, financially material things. They couldn't vote their conscience on stuff. But and along with the politicization of all institutions in the US, that's what's fallen apart. So uh, while in principle, Cheryl, we either have to go back to delegated managers can only take the financial interest of their uh, clients uh, into account, or we have to rebuild things so that the fundamental investors are actually getting their, uh, their uh, views uh, uh, rep represented. So I see Ken Judd way in the back. John, you criticized the carbon tax. Well, um, by saying that it only delays um, extraction. Now, um, first I'll point out that one should really think about the dynamic process of all of this. And even if you delay the extraction, of uh, oil, then perhaps that uh, oil, the CO2 from that, will arrive down the road a few decades when we have good carbon sequestration technology if we do the right um, research and development now. So it, the, talking about these things in isolation, I've had many discussions with the other side, and they love to talk about things in isolation, and my comment always is, look at the whole process, the whole menu of policies. Furthermore, I find it hard to believe that all oil would be extracted because as you take oil out, the cost rises, and one would suspect that a tax and it rises until the point where the marginal cost exceeds that of backstop technologies, solar, biofuels, whatever, I would think you could set the carbon tax high enough to basically keep more oil in the ground. Either comments from either? Just, those are fine points. Okay. Right here, sorry. I would just say, yeah, the other advantage of a carbon tax is, is uh, if you're going to do sequestration, which uh, is, it allows you to burn uh, oil, uh, <laughs> uh, it's nice to have a, a price on the sequestration and the carbon tax. You know, who's going to pay for carbon capture and storage? Uh, and having a system where there's a price on it is a, a good incentive to honest carbon capture and storage. Uh, now back to another thing I'm learning from Mark Rost, I'm sorry for pointing out here, is, uh, is the, the vast game of net stuff that pretends to reduce carbon, but in fact doesn't reduce carbon at all. 
Question here, sorry. John, John touched on <coughs> rebound effects a number of times, Jevons paradox and things like that. You know, the, the more we conserve uh, some resource or uh, the, the more people are going to use it because you because it's uh, basically you've got more uses for it if it's cheaper um, a very interesting example of that just in in the UK recently a study has concluded that home insulation saves nothing because within three years people are either leaving the thermostats turned up higher uh, or they're opening the windows as a way of regulating the heat in their home so actually the the Jevons paradox is sort of completely eating up any energy saving you might get from home insulation. Question, what is the limit of the Jevons paradox? I mean, I reckon that uh, with LED lights, even if I left every light in my house on, uh, on all night, I still wouldn't use as much energy as I used to with incandescent bulbs. So is there, is there a point at which these rebound effects do run out of room, or are they infinite? I think the usual consensus, just broadly economics, we'll go back to Sam Peltzman's favorite spikes on the back dashboard. Uh, Sam, uh, this was back when uh, we were putting seatbelts in, and, and Sam said, no, no, don't put seatbelts in. That'll make people drive uh, faster. They'll feel safer. Put big metal spikes on the dashboard, and then they'll slow down, and we'll have less <laughs> crashes. But the usual sense is that elasticities are less than one. So you lose some in the behavioral response, but it's, it's not usually greater than one. So it, actually, seatbelts work better than spikes on the dashboard. Sanjay, you have a comment? Oh, no. Uh, I was thinking of a somewhat different. Uh, uh, so you kind of, you know, in the, in the US, uh, almost everybody, uh, every male going through high school plays f football, and parents are quite concerned about, you know, their, their health, especially the head concussion. So, so you have these helmets, and now, uh, of course, the helmets are becoming a big issue in the NFL also now and the college. But uh, you know the uh, the uh, most other countries you know don't, don't have game where they have helmets like they may have pads and so one people one thing that has been suggested is we play football here without helmets and that way the the at least in the high school level they'll they'll not be you know using the helmets as a weapon. Uh, you know, goes back already to John's point is that people's you know behavior changes if they, if they feel that they have an additional level of safety with a with the seatbelt. But our job is to try to corral behavioral responses in the positive direction, and that's where the markets work much better than the mandates. Um, one thing that's been on my mind lately, so we have, with renewables, we have a cheap marginal cost, um, a source of energy that's intermittent and that's out in uncomfortable places. Well, um, yeah, if you just mandate that to go through a grid or whatever, you, you lose the behavioral response. This seems like a great opportunity to locate um, industrial uses that can easily be put somewhere and that like intermittent sources of energy. So you want to desalinate water. We'll put that way out where the windmills and the solar panels are, produce hydrogen. That, that can happen during the six hours a day when the sun's on uh, at low marginal cost in the middle of the Mojave Desert. Sure, why not? Uh, now, those are examples of, of trying to allow behavioral responses that the planners didn't think of to happen. So I think that's our challenge, is to turn that around positively. A question right in the back, yeah, thank you. Hi, 
Um, somewhere in the conversation, it seems that sea level rise is used as the only indicator of the risk of climate change. But there are other things of concern, such as drought and um, extreme weather events and, um, and crop failures and the disruption of supply chain due to extreme climate events. All these have effects on our economy as well as the livelihood of people. So I do feel uncomfortable about using sea level rise as the only indicator of the risk of climate change. And um, second, would you comment on the social cost of carbon? Thank you. Um, here, I'm, I'm channeling what I learned from Steve Coonan more than anyone else. Uh, we didn't just say sea level. We said temperature, sea level rise, and extreme weather events. I think briefly what we know about it is temperatures are going up more in some places than other places. Uh, climate change is going to be great for northern Canada. Uh, sea level is going up millimeters per year. And don't forget there's meters up and down with, uh, with, with waves. Uh, that extreme events are getting more, uh, com more frequent is very dubious. Um, uh, by the science of it. And more importantly, that, that weather affects the economy is even more dubious still. The, the costs, I had the number, um, the, the costs to extreme weather events in the US have been going down dramatically. Why? Because we're richer and we've hardened ourselves to, to those sorts of things. We, you know, the, the worst climate events, the, we now call, don't call them weather anymore, we call them climate events. Uh, you know, the, the floods in the Mississippi in the 1920s uh, killed, killed thousands of people. And that doesn't happen anymore because we've uh, built hardened cities. Um, so uh, the, the, even the extreme events um, thing, you know, crops, well, it's, agriculture has always been a, a little bit uncertain. Uh, modern industrial agriculture is much less uncertain. Over a century, you can move where you grow things north a couple hundred miles. And, our, and what's agriculture? 2% of the economy. Our modern industrial and service-oriented economy is just remarkably resistant to weather if the issue is going to be economic cost. Steve, please help. Uh, Sanjay, do you have any? Just a question. Sanjay, do you No, have... let it. Okay, fine. Steve knows the I answer. Do. I should have just said <laughs> Steve. Well, I'll show you talk this afternoon. Globally, extreme weather events, about two to three tenths of a percent of GDP per year. There are year to year fluctuations. In general, it's coming down. Sanjay, any comments either? Yeah, well, I mean, not uh, exactly directly to that, but I think uh, this again goes back to uh, the director Rice's point on, you know, on looking at all three. You know, you've got the economic growth, environment, and energy. So, with regard to the energy issue, I think a less well appreciated fact is, and this is you know provided by the United Nations, the U.S. Energy uh, in, uh, Information Agency, that uh, currently. 60% of the world's electric energy is generated by some version of coal or, or gas or uh, uh, oil. And, you know, about one-fifth of our energy needs come from renewables. And given the most optimistic scenario of the research and development and their outcomes for renewables, in the next 50 to 70 years, we may get at best somewhere between a third to a half 
of our energy needs from renewables. That's the best case scenario after about 50 years, and we still need a way to get there from here. So I think doing R&D on renewables is wonderful. I think we should keep doing it. But reality is, for the world at large, uh, most of their energy needs, at least over the next several decades, will have to be met from some sort of a carbon source. And, uh, you know, for the developing countries, the quality of life of the individuals is extremely sensitive to the amount of electricity they consume. And that's often forgotten in the debates mostly coming out from Davos and Glasgow and so forth. I mean, I don't know how many of them have gone and, you know, looked at the situation of uh, women, uh, you know, trying to go, you know, trudge, you know, miles and miles every day in developing countries to get, to gather firewood, which is not even good for, for their own breathing inside their inside their homes. Uh, you know, so. Could, could I just, I want to follow up, because this is like central to the point of the, the importance of the question, what are the economic damages of climate and how we have to quantify this. Uh, you, you mentioned drought, and everyone's saying, oh, we need to build the high-speed train to, to stop the drought in California. Of course, now it's we need to build the high-speed train to, to stop the floods in California, because the drought seems to be over for a moment. But uh, even th these, but these things don't add up. You're, they're asking us to spend large amounts of GDP to what benefit? We talked this morning about uh, small islands that are going to get uh, that are going to get flooded. Well, that's terrible. But is it worth two years of the U.S. GDP? to stop carbon, if that would stop the issue, which it won't. The sea level is going to rise anyway. Um, all, all the stuff that we're doing does not bring back the 1850 climate. All the stuff we're doing simply makes things perhaps a little bit less than it's going to be now. When you quantify it, when you ask, well, uh, you know, are, are we going to save an island, which is too bad that it's going underwater? Um, you know, by that, that much stop the sea level, maybe that much over a century, at the cost of four years of US GDP, uh, it just doesn't add up. So, so the quantifying the costs and benefits and, and even just get the decimal point in the right place is really important. And the, you, the central problem, it's very hard to add up economic damages of climate change to anything like the costs that they're asking us to uh, go to now to simply speed up a transition that's happening anyway. Question in the back there, yes. This is just an observation. Uh, I'm an engineer, so I'm looking at it as a conversation about entropy, um, which is basically a phenomena that uh, when you don't inject energy into a system to organize it, there's going to be chaos with it, natural consequences. So I think we are at that point where we have chaos about environmental information and the economics around the um, environmental uh, issues. But the fact is that nobody raises their kids to not prosper. That's a human nature thing across the world, right? And then the other thing is that prosperity, as you mentioned, is tied to energy consumption and good quality, cheap energy consumption, right? So wouldn't there be a more focused conversation around how do we uh, organize ourselves as people to make sure that we have systems in place that would provide that abundant energy? Maybe the short term 
term is something that is not sustainable, but then we transition, have a plan to transition to it. Because usually the pain that is suffered by people, let's say in an island somewhere in the Pacific where sea levels are rising, their loss of habitat or loss of cultivatable land is not really something that translates into a pain for a stockholder like myself in a company. So, so I think there needs to be some more debate on how do we make that connection to provide a, a plan or a path to that, uh, to that uh, sort of utopia of energy. So I think you've got it right on the, uh, if you're an economist or an engineer, you see that the right answer is energy abundance and how wonderful uh, that would be. Uh, and clean energy abundance. Um, the chaos, however, and I would also uh, say, we didn't talk about migration. 100 years is a long time. Uh, most of the people in the US moved here in the last 100 years. It, people don't sit there and wait 100 years and then drown and say, oh, I got to move. Um, the chaos is in the politics, um, not so much in the thermodynamics. And the problem is climate has become part of a degrowth movement that denies what you you just said, that denies that we need to move towards uh, an, an industrialized service economy of great energy abundance and the wonderful things that it could bring. We need to degrowth. We need to go back to the farm. Uh, it's, it's an environmental catastrophe. It's a human catastrophe. Uh, but that re it's gotten wrapped up in, in denying exactly the vision that, that you said. Sanjay. You have to be uh, hopeful that you know, we can move, I mean, this notion of having cheap, abundant energy, I mean, that's really where we would, we would like to get to. Uh, some of it can come from renewables, but most of it in, in the next several, several decades, carbon, you know, is, is one of it. Uh, nuclear, I think, is viable, but many people are concerned for other reasons. Uh, but that is the question we need to be raising. I think what's happened is when you talked about chaos, uh, chaos it, it's, it is there, and the chaos in the political system is, uh, or the political system in our country at some level is broken. So now what we're doing is we are going to the corporations to fix problems that legitimately belong to the Congress and the, and the elected officials. So that's the, what I'd say a mismatch between what, what companies were designed to do. They were not designed to solve the larger question. I mean, that's what we have the Congress. That's what we have uh, uh, the political framework for. And that's what's broken. Uh, so well, well, is it broken? Uh, no, I, mean, I think broken. a lot of what's going on with ESG is force corporations to do it because representative politicians won't vote for for horrible, impoverishing policies because the majority of people in the democracy yep. don't want that. So, so that's we, what the eco-authoritarians say. Got to take it from we them. We have to stop. We can go on and on. We will. But let's take a quick break and uh, come back. Anything you want to say? Get us going. Well, no, just to thank the panelists for yeah. a stimulating discussion. And to note that we'll return here at 10:30 uh, for the next session on adaptation to climate. So see you in 15 minutes.